0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Get out your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 11. When one of my boys was three years old, um, he came up to me one night with a piece of hard cinnamon candy. And we'd already told him, you can't have hard candy. Uh, You'll choke on it. And plus, he didn't even like cinnamon. So I don't know what he's thinking. But he's got a piece of hard cinnamon candy. And I've already heard his mama say, no, no, no hard candy. But he didn't like that answer, so I guess he was going to try me out. So he holds out the candy, and he looks at me, and he says, Daddy, uh, uh, Jesus told the angels to tell you that I can have this. (laughs) I would tell him, you little rat. You little lying rat. I said, He did not tell the angels that. And give me that candy and go get in bed. And uh, so, as he trudges off down the hall in his Winnie the Pooh footy pajamas, I, I was thinking to myself, Where'd he learn that? I didn't teach it to him. I, didn't, I know Amy didn't. We didn't set him down and go, hey, look, if you don't get what you want, tell somebody else a big lie and maybe you'll get what you want. Nothing in us taught him that. Where did he get it? Well, I hate to admit, but he probably inherited some of it from his mother. Um, no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. And mostly from his dad. But the truth is, it's in us. It's in our nature. I mean, we see it at the fall The the snake lies to Adam and Eve, they lie to each other, they lie to themselves, then they lie to God. And lying becomes a part of of who we are as people, and it becomes so natural that dishonesty is a part of the curse. Uh, And in a world of liars, you have to ask yourself, who can I trust? Isn't that the burning issue of our time? Who can I trust? In fact, they say to this generation, trust no one. And that's where this generation comes from. Trust no one. Who do you really trust? Do you trust the news? I don't. Do you trust politicians? No. Do you trust preachers? Eh, don't answer that. Do you trust bankers? Do you trust lawyers? Do you trust corporations? You know, we're to a point now we don't even trust doctors. We don't even trust the CDC. Who do you trust? We live in a world where we have been lied to so often by so many people that we no longer know who to trust. And it's easy for that mindset to bleed over into our understanding of God? Can we really trust Him? Is God trustworthy? That's at the core of what we're going to talk about this morning, Romans chapter 11. It's really the very basis of what Paul is dealing with. Paul has actually started this conversation over in Romans 9. And in Romans 9, verse 1, he essentially says, I'm heartbroken for my fellow Jews. And so 9, 10, and 11 all deal with the issue of the Jews. And Paul is like, in 9, he's like, Man, if I could give up my own salvation for my Jewish brothers, I would, because, you know, Paul was Jewish. And then in Romans 1, he says almost the exact same thing. He says, my heart's desire is for their salvation. But at the end of nine, he concludes it's their own fault. Why are the Jews who are the chosen people of God who live under the promise of the covenant of Abraham? Why are they now on the outside looking in of the new covenant of grace? And in nine, he says, it's really their fault. They would not give up the concept of privilege and performance. They thought because they were born of Abraham, they had a privileged position. And by virtue of that, they have the law. So all they got to do is perform up to some uh, legitimate standard of the law, and God will continue to bless them and give them heaven and all those other things. And so Paul says it's your own fault. You wouldn't you wouldn't abandon that idea and move to the gospel of grace. And he says essentially the same thing at the end of, uh, of uh, chapter uh, 10. He says, "Um, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Do you get that? That word obstinate, an immovable uh, people. They just won't receive it. And that's breaking Paul's heart. I mean, and I get that, don't you? We all have people we love, people in our family who no matter what we say to them about Jesus, they just keep rejecting it. People in your workplace, people in your life, people in circumstances and relationships, and you get it. I mean, it breaks your heart. You, You want more for them. But there's a difference here because in this case, he's talking about the Jews. And God had made some very specific promises to the Jews because of Abraham. And for the Jews to be on the outside now looking in calls to question the integrity of God as God somehow made a promise that he hasn't kept. And so Paul picks that up and he begins to deal with that in chapter 11 as if God had gone back on his promise. Verse one, he says, I say, then God has not rejected his people, has he? And look at this negation, may it never be. That's the strongest negation possible in the Greek. We see this all the time in Paul's writing. Uh, I had a prof in, in uh, language who said, that's as close to cussing as Paul would ever get. Absolutely no way, he says. And then Romans 10 becomes about the trustworthy of God, specifically as it relates to the Jews. And here's my problem. We're not Jews, Right. And so we've got this whole chapter that's dealing with God's unique relationship with the Jews and whether or not he has fulfilled his promise to them, whether or not he's been trustworthy with them. And none of us are Jews or maybe a few of us. But by and large, this is not our issue. And so the question then becomes, well, should we just skip chapter 11? And I think if you do that, you're going to miss something very important about how we understand God. Because in this conversation about the Jews, we learn about the nature of God. And that's where it becomes applicable to us, where it's not so much talking about specific people groups as it is the nature of God. And here's the first thing we learn. We learn that His plans are different from our expectations. Verse 1, again, let's finish it. For I too am an Israelite. So Paul is saying, uh, has God rejected His people? He hasn't rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's saying, I'm a Jew. If God rejected the Jews, then what about me? You see, the Jews had thought that by virtue of their heritage, their lineage, their ancestry... That all of them, by virtue of the fact that they could all trace their roots to Abraham, that all of them were going to continue to live forever in a privileged position with God. And you see this repeatedly, even in the New Testament. We're Abraham's offspring. At one point, they're arguing with Jesus, and they say, we know who our father is, Abraham. You don't know who your father is. And so not only is this an, an allusion to the fact that they were privileged because they were children of Abraham, but there's also a jab there that Jesus' uh, the parental lineage, uh, by virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit was his father, uh, was called into question again. There's another uh, illustration where Jesus says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And what do they say to him? We're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody. And so they're constantly coming back to this, even though uh, various prophets and, and other writers have constantly said that's a false assumption. In fact, John the Baptist said, you think it's important that you're children of Abraham? God can raise up children of Abraham out of these stones, but they just wouldn't come off of it. And uh, so the whole point of Romans 10 was to describe the relationship with God. It's not inherited. It's received by faith that Jesus Christ went to the cross to fully atone for sin, satisfying the justice of God on the cross That whoever believes in Him, for while we were still sinful, Christ died for us. That if you believe in your heart... Uh, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's nothing but a a relationship based upon the faith in what Christ did on the cross. And every single person, uh, regardless of birthright, has to come to a personal decision to receive Christ as both Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. It didn't matter for the Jews. Every single person has to come to God the same way. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, John 14. There's no other way. And it doesn't matter who your dad is. Now that was true for the Jews. It's true for us. I can't tell you how many times I talk to somebody and they're like, yeah, I used to go to church. Yeah, you know, my, my granddaddy was a preacher, my daddy was a deacon, you know, my mom and daddy, we were at church all the time, and you know, and, and, and we talked about that. You've got this drug problem, you got drugged to church all the time. Remember, you've heard that. That doesn't matter. God doesn't have any grandkids. God only has children. And a child of God is a child of God by faith. Not from, from, from some parental lineage, not the fact that you were you know, in the cradle row from, uh, from birth up. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. So what about the promise? I mean, it's still there. But here's what he's saying. The remnant inherits it. You see, the expectation was we all are in because of Abraham. He's like, no, 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 no. There was always the intent of a remnant. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew, Or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, and we looked at this very passage in 1 Kings 19 several weeks ago, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed the prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. Verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. He's talking about the remnant. Verse 5, and here Paul brings it back. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And you see this concept of remnant throughout the Old Testament. He alludes to this illustration in Elijah in 1 Kings 19, but Isaiah talked about the remnant. Uh, Jeremiah talked about the remnant. You see the remnant of Israel coming back after the Babylonian captivity. All of those things are signs and pointers of God's purpose for his people. And in the early church, who were the original members of the early church? They were Jews, they were all Jews. In the very earliest stages, it was all Jewish. In fact, they really wrestled, and we'll talk about that in a minute, how they were supposed to bring the gospel beyond the boundaries of Judaism into the rest of the world. Here's the point. You say, what's the point? Well, here's the point. Things don't always work out the way we expect. They had this expectation. Here's how God has to be. And, and, and he brings in this concept of salvation by grace through faith, and that shatters their expectations, but they still wouldn't come off of their expectations. Um, and they relentlessly insisted that they achieve salvation by keeping the law. Paul said, no, the privilege of birthright wasn't to give you uh, uh, absolute. Uh, 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 privilege with God the privilege of birthright was that you were going to be first in line for the gospel Romans 1 but only those who receive salvation by grace through faith become part of the chosen and he hits it another lick in verse 6 he says but if it is by grace it's no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace is no longer grace and that was not what the Jews expected Now look, God's plan never changed. It was just different from what they expected. And they couldn't come off of their expectations. There is a powerful lesson for us. God won't always do things the way you expect. But that doesn't mean that He's untrustworthy or unfaithful. And so we get down to the heart of God. Let's let's set aside the Jewish question. Let's come back around to us. What are your expectations of God? What do we all hope for from God? here's what we do with God. We make a plan, we get our life plan, we line it out, and we say to God, okay, God, bless my plan. And we don't realize, you know, uh, I heard a guy at one time say, sovereignty of God is the second most important doctrine behind the doctrine of justification. And he's right. Because if it's all about me, and it's all about my plan, then when God's sovereignty steps in and says, I've got a different plan, then then it shatters my plan, and it shatters my belief in God's trustworthiness. Because I thought, hey, my plan is what? I want to be blessed. And what is blessing? Well, it means life is easy. It means I got plenty of money, uh, nobody's getting sick, Everybody's doing good. I don't have any pain and suffering and sorrow and trouble in my world. And that's the way I expect it to work out. That's the plan I set. And God says, well, that's not my plan. My plan may drag you through some things you didn't want to go through because to bring you to the point where I need you to be, you've got to deal with some stuff you don't want to do. And all of a sudden, I have to deal with that. And when God doesn't meet your expectations, we think we can't trust Him and our reaction is predictable. God, why would you let this happen to me? I expected life to be easy and trouble-free, but here I am in pain and things have turned out differently than I expected. I just don't know if I can trust God anymore. You ever heard that? You ever said it? God's plan won't always fit your expectations, but that doesn't mean He's untrustworthy. It means you need to change your expectations. Second thing we learn is that our failure won't ruin God's plan. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. Wait a second, let that sink in. He's saying Israel has not obtained it, but those who were chosen obtained it. Again, let's deal with the word chosen the way it was intended, okay? For us, chosen means to select. And so chosen means I'm going to line 10 people up against the wall. I'm going to choose you, choose you, choose you, choose you, which means I'm going to not choose you, which means I've chosen you to go the other way. They call that dual determinism. But if you understand chosen the way Paul dealt with it, it was a Jewish understanding of the word chosen. It wasn't to make a choice. It was to be in a privileged position with God. And what he's saying is those people who thought they had privilege by virtue of birthright missed out because those people who found privilege with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith became the chosen. So in other words, when I choose Christ, I become chosen. You understand it now? That's the idea behind it. But they were chosen, they thought, by virtue of birthright. We become chosen when we receive God's gift of grace through faith. So we become chosen by rebirthright, right? And we obtain the promise through faith. They missed that promise because they didn't have faith. And look what it says, that hardened them to the gospel. Look at the end of that verse, and the rest were hardened. Do you see that? The rest were hard; they were hardened. But then he 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 goes on, and it seems as if the implications of this is that God hardened them. Look at verse eight. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see and not, uh, and, and eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And, it, and all of a sudden, I'm troubled by this because it seems as if the hardness is attributed to God, but we need to understand that's an expression used to understand it. Hardened hearts are the natural consequence of judgment. Go back over to Romans, verse 21, uh, Romans 1 verse 21. It says, they knew God, but they didn't honor Him as God. And then in verse 24, it says, therefore, God gave them over. And one of the, one of the parts of the justice and the judgment of God is that when we harden ourselves to the promises of God, he will give us over to those things that we want. And that becomes the judgment and that becomes the hardening. <laughs> one time I was at an Astros baseball game and here's how this thing works. Yeah, the, the truth is that the hardening is is a consequence of our own choices and so I'm at this Astros baseball game and I look and out in the outfield a little kitten I don't know if it's a cat or a kitten from where I was sitting in the two dollar seats it you know it could have been a kitten could have been a mountain lion I don't know it was little and it was running around the field And and all of a sudden, the outfielders start trying to chase it down, but they can't catch it, so they stop. And here comes the security guys. And, you know, everybody's cheering for the cat, and the cat runs and goes this way and that way. And finally, they kind of get it corralled, and one of the security guys reaches down and picks it up, and he's walking off with it when that little cat turns into a buzzsaw. It just goes all claws and teeth on. And all you can see is the guy going, (laughs) and then he throws the cat. (laughs) That's the judgment of God. He's trying, he's trying to get you to a safe place and he picks you up and he's trying to get you there. But man, you're just all claws and teeth. And finally, he just gives you over. That's the hardening that he's talking about here. Stedman said this, when you hear truth, it is always very important that you do something about it. If you know something is true, then you had better act on it. If you don't, you lose your capacity to recognize truth. Gradually, the dry rot that is described here that is so visibly evident among many in Israel today will set in. Paul calls it blindness. Their eyes are blinded. So that even when the truth is there, they cannot see it. Their ears are deaf. Even when loving appeals and warnings are set before them, they don't hear them. And their blindness and their deafness was their unwillingness to embrace Christ. But then Paul writes the craziest thing, and I really, want to, I really want to take a minute to process this. Verse 11, he says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And I, I read that and I was like, wait, What? By their transgression, salvation came to the Gentiles. In other words, God used their failure to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And I thought about that for a long time because I'm like, wait, I thought the plan all along was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And it was. But God in His foreknowledge, knowing what the Jews were going to do and that they were going to reject Jesus, that actually opened the door for the Gentiles. So then I'm thinking, how did that happen? You know, how, did, how did that work out? And and I I, I asked this question of myself. I, I thought, what would have happened had the Jews embraced faith in Christ? Because here's what might have happened. You know, the Jews were nationalistic in that time, not today, but in that time, racist. And the idea was, I'm either a Jew or I'm a Gentile. And so if Jesus had been embraced by the Jews It might have been, and it would be very likely, that those Jews would have just embraced faith in Christ into the Jewish nationality, into the Jewish national religion, and kept it for themselves and never shared that with anyone else because that was in their nature. You see, there was a part of this they never did really get. Their attitude would have been, we've got the Messiah, now we're saved, so sorry Gentiles. And, you know, the early church, which was predominantly Jewish, really struggled in the early days to, to with the question of, do we allow the gospel to go beyond Jewishness into the Gentile world? And they had a whole big thing on this. Read Acts 15, you know, and they had a big council and everything. they got to figure out, uh, is this appropriate? And Peter had this whole thing with the vision and Cornelius and all that. And then, you know, Philip brings the gospel to the Samaritans. Samaritans and the apostles got to come down and do some baptizing because they had to bring that apostolic authority onto what was going on because they weren't sure the Samaritans could get it. you see what I'm saying they were wrestling even then but what would have happened if the whole Jewish nation had done it because the Jews never really understood the promise of Abraham the promise of Abraham was I will make I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the whole world Genesis 12, verse verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, this day, Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so shall you be a blessing, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Now here's the key. This is the part they never seem to hear. And in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They were so chained to their own racism and privilege that they couldn't love beyond their borders. Man, I know a lot of churches like that. Don't you? They're 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 more like country clubs, and membership has its privileges. And for you to come into our church, you got to look a certain way, you got to act a certain way, you got to think a certain way, you got to kind of get your life cleaned up, you got to dress a different way, and all that junk. Same idea. Jesus is just for us. You know, this isn't a country club. It's a life-saving station. It's a hospital. And membership, is, is, membership doesn't have its privileges. Membership has its responsibilities. And our calling is to take care of people. The Jews totally miss that. But here's the funny thing. It didn't thwart God's purpose. He knew what they would do. He already prepared for it. By their transgression, salvation has come to us. And He knows when you're going to fail. He knows when I'm going to fail. And He knows when we're going to blow it. And sometimes we think, oh, no, God, I blew it. You can never work again. You know, you're trying to, you're trying to reach, speak truth into a friend's life, and, and you blow it. And you're like, oh, I just thwarted God's purpose. Look, your failure doesn't thwart God's plan. When you fail to embrace God's plan, it doesn't keep His plan from happening. It just determines whether or not you get to participate in the blessing. That's a sad thing for the Jews. God's purpose for the world was still carried out. They just missed the blessing. Last thing, we, we learned that with God, failure is never final. You see this beautiful hope in Paul. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is richest for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And I wish I had time for all of this. I really don't. And you can read the rest of it. But, but Paul compares the church to, uh, limbs that are grafted into a rootstock. And the rootstock is, is Judaism. And it's the promise of Abraham and all the promises through the Old Testament. And, and we're grafted in. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So there's there's tremendous grace here, you know, that that you've been grafted in, right? That God has given us that but but there's grace for the for the Jews as well because in light of all that the Jews had done to stop the spread of the gospel you see Paul still hoping for them and and think about this from Paul's perspective and read sometime what they had done to him Paul had been stoned by the Jews that that's that's corporal punishment that's like saying i went to the electric chair once and i survived <laughs> they hung me but i survived they stoned me but i survived and he was beaten with rods he was scourged he was humiliated, he was misunderstood, he was slandered. Everywhere he went, it was the Jews hounding him, troubling him. And yet here he is loving them, encouraging the church not to hate them or think less of them, verse 21. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So don't make the same mistake they had. But here's the most amazing thing, it's still not too late, verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God's able to graft them in again. Wait, even after all they did to Jesus, even after all they did to the church, the Jews arrested and brutalized the church. They tried to stomp the church out. Paul was a part of that. He was on the hit squad. He was headed to Damascus to wipe out the church in Damascus when Jesus appeared to him uh, on the Damascus road and he saw a blinding light and then he heard a voice and that voice was Jesus saying, Saul, Saul. Now listen to this. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's like, I'm not persecuting you, Jesus, I'm persecuting the church. And and the implication is when you attack the church, you're attacking Jesus. And so here's a group of people who had relentlessly attacked the bride of Christ, had relentlessly attacked the name of Jesus, had crucified Jesus. And yet out of the mercy and grace and relentless love of God, look what he says, verse 24, for if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, talking to the church. How much more will those who are natural branches, that's the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, uh, you brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be unwise not, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. Paul still got great hope for the Jews. And so also Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Wow. You know what that means? It means failure is never final. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. His promises to the Jews were never broken. They're still in place. And his promises to you have never been broken. They're still in place. Verse 30. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So also these also, so these also will have who these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Let that sink in. God's going to show mercy to the Jews that hated Jesus. God showed mercy to you even when everything you stood for hated Jesus. You know what that means? It means no matter what you've done, no matter how bad it's gotten, no matter how deeply you feel like you've disappointed yourself, no matter the lies you've told or the lies you've believed, God's grace is still there for you. That's trustworthiness. And he makes this promise, verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Your failure is never final, and you can trust him for that. Think about all the lies you've been told. Think about all the lies you chose to believe. You know, the crazy thing about Adam and Eve at that tree, they knew the truth. They were asking for truth, but they were believing the lie. That's what we do. We choose to believe the lie. Think about all the lies you told yourself. And consequently, you live in a time where you're like, I don't know who I can trust. I can't trust you. I can't trust you. I can't trust you. I can't even trust myself. Who do I trust? You trust the one that's trustworthy, the one who kept all of his promises and keeps His promises still, even when we're untrustworthy. Have you ever trusted Christ? I'm talking about trusting with your life. Have you ever trusted Christ to be your Savior? You ever come to a point in your life where you said, you know what, God, I've made a mess of this thing. Would you still have me? And I can promise you He will. The Bible says all you've got to do Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. and Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you shall be saved. You can do that here this morning. If you've never done that, why would you leave here the way you came in? Why would you leave here separated and cut off from God and and confused and worried about your future eternal life? Why would you do that? Why not settle it today? Just, God, here I am. I give myself to You. That's at salvation. Let me ask you something. Have you stopped trusting God? Maybe your expectations led you to think life was going to work out a certain way and it hasn't worked out that way. Have you stopped trusting Him because of it? Maybe you thought, well, I've I've just messed it up so bad that His plan is totally off the rails and there's nothing anybody can do to put it back together. Do you really believe that? Maybe you've you've come to believe, well, you know, I've messed up my life so bad that my failure now defines me, and, and so failure has become for me final. Do you really believe that? Because the trustworthy God says that's not true. And maybe it's time for you to do some business and just say, you know what, God? I knew you, and I know that I knew you, but it's time for me to come home to let you be Lord of my life. Can I pray for you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are trustworthy. In a world of lies, You're the one source of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, I've seen that to be true in my life, and I pray that it would be true in the lives of those right now who don't know You as their Savior. That in this moment, they would just say that simple prayer, God, I... I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that You raised Him from the dead. So save me now. Take me. Whatever whatever I've got, take me. I'm Yours. But Father, I pray too for my, my friends like me who sometimes we get tangled up in lies even after we've known the truth. And it's hard sometimes for us to keep believing because life has turned out different from what we had expected. And the lie that we hear is that it's your fault. You weren't trustworthy when in fact our expectations were the thing that needed to be changed. So, Father, we give you our expectations right now. We just pray that you would take them and and change them so that we would see your glory. We thank you that nothing we've ever done will defeat your purpose. And we thank you that nothing we've ever done is beyond the reach of grace. Heal us and restore us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.